Welcome to the Succession Stories podcast. I'm Lori Barkman. I work with business owners to maximize value, create options for the future, and be happy in your next. I'm excited to share the What's Next series as part of Succession Stories. These conversations spotlight the theme of transitions. Changes can come at you unexpectedly or be planned. Are you ready? After all, in business and life, Succession is about transitions and how you embrace what's next matters. When you face your biggest ownership and leadership transition decisions, will you be ready? Most owners feel as if they are pushed out of their business, but the happiest exits occur when there are more factors pulling you towards your next. That's why I'm offering a way for you to evaluate your readiness on a personal level. Go to getmyprescore.com. Take our online survey, just takes eight minutes to complete and you'll receive a custom report of your personal readiness to exit your business, including a summary of unseen factors that could lead to regret. In addition, you'll receive a free ebook, The Exit Checklist, a five-step personal action plan for a happy and lucrative exit from your business. Your score means getting closer to your next chapter, whatever, wherever that may be. Visit getmyprescore.com. This week on Succession Stories, it was a special conversation I had with a friend of mine, Hal Riley. Hal was the team captain for the world's toughest race, Eco Challenge in Fiji. 2020, you might have seen it on Amazon Prime. Hal led a team of disabled veterans and civilians who competed against 65 other teams to go across 400 miles of dense jungles, steep mountains, winding rivers, oceans, and dangerous swamps. It was an incredible, incredible experience. And as Hal shared, his team had some extra challenges. We shine a new light on the term disabled is one of the things that Hal talks about, is really passionate about, and how you shouldn't pack your fears when you go into something that's so unknown. He looks for the moments to take the chance, even if you don't win. There's so many life lessons, business lessons, leadership lessons, and what Hal and I talked about. I really encourage you to listen to the whole episode. It is a little longer than normal. I will give you that. It's over an hour, but I guarantee you, you will listen and be inspired to Hal Riley. Hal Riley, it is amazing <laughs> to see you. Thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories. This What's Next episode is going to be really special. And we're going to talk first about how we know each other. But first, let me welcome you. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks. I'm excited about this. Sorry, this will be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you and I reconnected recently. And I was thinking about the calendar and by golly, we met 10 years ago. Can you believe it's been, <laughs> or I should say we last really spoke 10 years ago. Right. We right. worked together because I was your client. Right. I was your client at a pretty big company here. And we had, I guess we worked together for probably almost two years. Yep. And as life goes with transitions, we had kind of lost track of each other. And social media, I think in, you know, its brightest days in a wonderful example as us is it kind of brought us back together even most recently. Hmm. So I wanted to share with the audience a little bit about, I think, connectivity. And you might recognize this or anyone, anyone watching on videos. Can, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's going to recognize I love it. what I'm holding up. So I'll tell about to everyone what I'm holding. I'm holding a Russian nesting doll set of Jerome Bettis, who is a Hall of Famer, Pittsburgh Steeler running back. and 
Hal knew that, of course, I lived in Pittsburgh and that I'm a fan of the Steelers. And you at the time you were in Dallas and how you had these Russian nesting dolls. I don't know, but you mailed them to me. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And so somehow these Russian nesting dolls, I'd look at them every once in a while, you know, again, this was like 10 years ago. And I think, oh, Hal Raleigh, I wonder what he's up to. And then what happened in August of 2020, I happened to be looking at my Instagram and I saw these amazing posts from you about this eco challenge race in the middle of who knows where in Fiji. And I was like, is this for real? And I started following you and it was for real. And that's a big part of what I want to talk about today is your experience with that race. It was quite an amazing experience for you. And I also want to rewind on other aspects of your life. But I think, you know, and you and I talked ahead of time, big part of what I want to learn from you is your experiences with fear Mm. and how you learn to overcome fear, not only through your experience with the eco challenge, but also with other things in your life. Sure. Yeah. So I know that's a lot. That's a heavy, that's a heavy lift <laughs> right yeah. there, but we're going to dive into all of that. Can, so we, first, can we edit out the 10 year part? Because, you know, maybe that <laughs> ages us or something. It doesn't age us. I mean, come <laughs> on, we're still in our thirties. So right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. We got started early in life. Yeah. So first question for you, Hal, is why don't you talk about your experience a little bit with eco challenge what was it what was the race just sort of you know if people didn't watch it on amazon prime hopefully they did but in case they didn't just talk a little bit about the race what was that for you yeah the eco challenge is amazon primes it's a series for the world's toughest race and they were not lying (laughs) <laughs> when, they, when they named it that. It was real. <laughs> um, yeah. Eco Challenge, a few people may remember, was on Discovery Channel and a couple of other networks way back in the day. There was a 17-year gap between when we did the race and the last one, which was also in Fiji. So it was good to have the race come back. It was really fun to be a part of. I got to be the captain of Team Unbroken, which I'm really proud of and really was really excited about. On that race team was two wounded combat veterans and two civilians, one being myself. And there are these long expedition length races, which I'll explain that in a a moment. There are four race members and one support person. So our support person was a friend of mine who was also a civilian and he was super stoked and excited to, to be on the team. Our team was kind of put together by my older sister, Gretchen and Gretchen started the team really with the, this mission of having some wounded veterans and civilians working together. And that is a big challenge for just a lot of ordinary, regular veterans. When they come back home, the world is very different. They are now in a civilian world. The rules are different. And so that's a, a challenge that we wanted to highlight and be able to work together on in the, this platform for the race and as a team. And then there was also the element of just disabilities on the team. Gretchen is deaf and has some traumatic brain injuries from being blown up in combat. Keith has several metal joints from also being blown up in his Humvee while he was serving in combat. And was also on the team and is a civilian, but she works for the VA and has diabetes. And then I am a civilian, but I was in a boating accident years ago when I was younger and ruptured several discs in in my back. So 
we all kind of brought a bit of challenge to the table. And yeah, it was really fun. It was really fun. Just briefly, adventure racing as a broad statement, for those that haven't, aren't familiar, haven't seen the show, adventure racing is essentially an off-road triathlon on steroids. <laughs> the fundamental sport beneath the racing is orienteering, which means you have to navigate the entire course by map and compass. So you never have a course to, to look at. You, you're given a set of maps. You never look at, oh, here's the race course. So unlike a traditional triathlon where you can really hone in on micro seconds or micro minutes to kind of work on your placement and perform better, adventure racing, man, you never, you never know what the course is. You don't know what the disciplines are going to be. And shorter, most races are eight to 24 hours, meaning you, there are a set of checkpoints that you have to find along this given section of these maps. And you have eight or 24 hours to find as many of those checkpoints as possible. You get points and then you're scored on time. For the races that are really longer, either in time or in distance, there may be a three-day race or a five-day race, or in the case of Eco Challenge, it was an 11-day race. That's considered an expedition-length race. And you have team members that support you along the way and provide all the food and the water and the gear as you change between biking or rafting or paddling or swimming or kayaking or building a bamboo raft or rock climbing. And fighting the elements and sleep was a kind of a luxury, right? You you yeah. basically got to rest when you could. Yeah. It was when it was super dark or you were super tired or you just couldn't go anymore. Unlike most every other sport I know of, there are a couple of phrases that go around in the adventure racing world. And one of them is that sleep is a strategy, <laughs> <laughs> which means you may, it may not even be a luxury. It may not even it's be a strategy. Yeah. It's a strategy and anything less than probably 30 hours, a 30 hour race would be what most people would just do straight through without sleeping. Certainly for eco challenge, you have to sleep along the course for that many days. But I think the top teams that finished that course slept a total of 20 hours wow. in, in a week and a half. So, so let's yeah. jump back. Let's jump back in time. You mentioned that you had broken your back. What happened? Tell me about that. Yeah, I was a high school student. I'd spent a lot of time on the lake. My brother and my dad and I used to run slalom courses for fun. And one weekend we were riding the inner tube and for those lake enthusiasts out there who like to ride tubes, my, my dad and my brother and I are all quite competitive and we would just beat the dog out of each other. So it was something, <laughs> and that was an adventure race in and of itself. <laughs> is that where it all began? It's like a rodeo on water, basically. <laughs> and and uh, this is in Texas? Yes, this is in Texas. Yeah, out in West Texas where I grew okay. up. And one weekend I was on the lake, some friends, neighbors were driving the, driving the boat and I was riding with my cousin. And we went up into a cove and turned kind of in the, in the shallow part of the, of the cove, the narrower part of the cove. And as the tube slung out around the boat while it turned, we slammed into a dock. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the doctors in the, in the emergency room that evening, you know, they, they estimated that to do the damage that did for both of us, it was, we probably hit that dock about 60 miles an hour. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Were you conscious? Do you remember, you remember it all? I remember a lot of it. I remember seeing the dock and then hitting it. 
Okay. We were just traveling that fast yeah. across the water. You know, we both kind of hit the dock sideways across our across our our glutes and had a lot of bruising and fractures in our elbows or wrists. And at the time, I don't remember the impact, but I remember floating in the water and watching my legs float up because I they, I just couldn't feel couldn't, them. Couldn't yeah. move them. Did you think that you would lose the ability to walk? Oh, I thought immediately I was paralyzed. Yeah. I immediately knew this was, this is bad news. Thank heavens. It turned out that was like a spinal, a form of spinal trauma and everything reset. And I walked out of the hospital that night. Wow. But that ended, you had told me earlier, I think you were intending to go to college and water ski on a scholarship. Yeah. 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 I mean, it ended a number of things. Do you reach a point where you, I think probably all of us have something that is a barrier, something that holds us back. And that for me was just one of those elements that I thought this, I'm going to do whatever I want to do physically as much as I can. I'm going to play I played club soccer. I even played uh, football on a team that called itself semi-pro back in the Dallas days. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of, pretty a lot of pro-am volleyball, beach volleyball, and I've done every sport that I want to do. And about every three, four, five years, that old back injury gets a hold of me. I feel it every day. I wake up every day. It's something that, you know, it's always um, with you that you deal with. Yeah. Yeah. But every every now and then it kind of shuts shuts you down. I met with a neurologist one time during one of these really bad episodes where I was considering whether or not I was going to have to have surgery. And I've intentionally chosen not to have surgery all these years. Um, and I encourage people, if you have any option, don't have back surgery. You'll have it again. If you have one, you'll have a second. And this neurologist told me one time, he said, you have the spine of a 47 year old hockey player. I was like, I don't play (laughs) hockey and I'm not 47, you know, (laughs) at the time, at the time, but yeah. But it led you to make different choices in in college, which then led you to a creative career, which is of course how we met because you were a creative director, an amazing creative director. You did such great work um, in Dallas and talk about that a little bit. How did you make that choice to transition into the arts? Was that something you always knew you wanted to do? I think so, but without consciously knowing it, I knew I was very interested in doing art as a career, as a job, you know, when I was a, a high school student, but I also really struggled with the idea of like trying to sell artwork on the street. You know, I, I couldn't visualize what that looked like when I was younger. I felt like oh, maybe I should be an architect, which is funny in the design in the design industry, a lot of designers all started off as architects because it's the thing that you can visualize and your parents and mentors can be can kind of see and, and point you toward. It's hard to point people toward like, no, you can be a graphic creative visualizer of stories and problem solving. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's more of a popular career now, but at the time, it wasn't something that a lot of people just raised their hand and said, like, this is, I'm going to go off to, to art school and be a visual communications manager, you know? Yeah. Parents are usually like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so you pursue that for years. And mm-hmm. I guess if we flash forward on that transition where you said, okay, I'm ready for something different, which probably was around the time, I guess, uh, when we had last spoken, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. You were leading some design teams in Dallas, 
and you had made a couple of transitions. So talk about that. What led you to choosing different paths in your career? Yeah. So I'm still a creative director. I love the craft of design. That's the thing that I that has held me in that current, if you will, sort of moving, this thing that's moving uh, always in my life. When I look back at the pictures and the things that I drew, the art, my artwork from high school, they were ads, even though I didn't know it. You know, they were, that was a picture of a cool car on a beach with a volleyball net and then a headline. You know, I didn't know what I, I was just drawing cool letters. I didn't put together that this is, oh, this is what an ad is. You know, it's an interesting image with a headline that draws you in and tries to create some sort of actionable behavior from it, you know. And over the years, I've, I have always been that young designer that asks too many questions. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I just have such a thirst for knowledge. I love, love to learn. Um, I love to see the, the layers and the connections between things. I'm constantly finding metaphors and learnings, lessons learned from this aspect of life to that aspect of life. Um, sometimes I, I feel like there are panes of glass, you know, that you can, from one layer, you can look at them and see that they're separate. You know, adventure racing is separate from design, is separate from a business career, is separate from a life, personal life. But in other layers, those things all overlap and the colors change depending on the way you look through these different experiences. And so I've gone from being, you know, a young designer early in my career that asked too many questions because I want to know what was on the other side of that creative brief, other side of that, that challenge. What's the business need behind this? Why are they asking us to create these postcards or this website? Why, when they say they want a logo, why do they want a logo? What, why do they want it this color or that shape? And why is a serif font the right font or sans serif font, right? There, I just was always into these questions because I was really trying to use those to use my design skills to solve the problem at hand. Right. And over the course of my career, I just learned wow, there's a lot of young designers as I got older and, and took on more management roles, management for the team or management for a studio or a group or management for large clients, um, even agencies themselves. I just learned that a lot of times creatives are um, a bit of an anomaly sometimes. They're hard people to manage, creative people. Because they, they're pretty independent-minded, right? They have a yeah. vision or something they want to go do. And yeah. yet there's this no clear direction of how to get there. So yeah. how do you bring that all together? Yeah. Well, creative people are also very intuitive people, which is they often know, they often feel the answer before they can tell you what it is, or they can feel that this direction or this solution is the right solution, but they may not have learned the communication skills to articulate that um, direction. So I think that's where I just found a passion personally. I love teams and I love people and I love design and I love racing and I love all of these things. And I just, the root of it really is people. And I think that's where I just found a heart, found a place to say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm like you 20 years ago in my career, and, but I, because I'm like you and I've learned these other things, I know how to be a better ambassador both for the work and for the client and the customer who's looking for this piece, 
but I also know how to be an ambassador for the designer themselves and help them get to the right solution and help help this kind of, but I want it, I want the logo bigger, you know, the, the age right. old joke. I want the logo bigger, but why, you know? So <laughs> I've just learned to kind of find value in both points of view and learn to um, speak both languages, if you will. At this point in your career, you're navigating different opportunities. When did you start racing? Was that when you moved out of Texas or was it before that? Oh my gosh, adventure racing. This is crazy to say, but the world's toughest race was my first one. So yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, was yeah that was our very first. None of us, none of us on Team Unbroken had ever done an adventure race before. We didn't okay. even we didn't even know it had existed. We were All just right, like, so oh, look at this, sh- look at this cool thing. It. Let's sign up for the world's toughest race. This will be fun. Okay, so you got to level set me here. So how did you go from hey, I'm in Texas, yeah, I've never yeah. done this before, to hey, let's sign up for this race, and here's how we even get approved for it. How did that <laughs> even come together? Yeah, I was in Texas. I had moved from Dallas where we met and we worked together at a a couple of places. And I had already moved to be freelance and I was running my own um, freelance design business. I moved down to Austin to be the chief design officer of a mobile tech company down there. I loved that. That was fun. Um, I I moved from there to go run a studio called Design and Manufacturing that was very much about experiential design. So it was a lot of like custom fabrication, welding and carpentry and um, projection mapping and a lot of little nerdy stuff that I, that I could use my hands. I really got into, into that, to that company. And about, about a year and a year into that, we had just finished this huge project for Game of Thrones down at South by and, and Gretchen calls me and says, Hey, I'm thinking about this race. And I said, that looks awesome. We should get a team together and go do that. that. Yeah, heck yeah, I'll do that with you. And she said, well, we already have a team. You're you're on it. And I was, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, all right. So at the time I went out to, at the, at the beginning, I was the crew assistant for the team. And so I went out to go to Asheville, North Carolina, where we did a lot of our training. I went out there to do some training and just realized this is one of those opportunities in life. You called Gretchen your sister earlier, but you don't literally yeah. mean your sister, do you? We're not blood sister. Uh, we we grew up together. She used to babysit me when I was when I was okay. little. Uh, we're family. We're family, okay. but but we have different parents. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, so yeah. it wasn't like a random phone call. This was somebody no. you knew, trusted, and loved, and oh. she's saying, "Hey, there's this really interesting opportunity." Now, had she ever done adventure racing before? No, no. 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 And just to remind everyone, she had lost her hearing at this point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there you go. And is there a tryout of some sort? Uh, You submit because the race was going to be on Amazon. There's an interesting overlap between it being a reality show of a race. So there've been a few questions. uh, I've been asked a number of questions about the race. How much was it a TV show or how much of it was a right. race? It was 100% a race. There's there's no point where the show ever influenced what the race was. There were just camera people who kind of ran alongside and were staged and posed in different in, in different locations. And they basically documented the race and they followed a few of the teams along the way. And they we didn't know, no one knew whether you were going to be a featured team or not. Um, until the show came out, really. 
we we kind of got we've kind of felt like we were because we were asked a lot of questions for interviews and a lot of pictures of us as kids and all that kind of stuff. But you submit a video as a team. Here's who we are. Here's our racing experience. Here's what we want to go and do. And here's why we're here's why the world's toughest race is is the, the next race for us. So we we submitted all of that. And, and for us, it was really the story. For us, it was about just because someone is labeled as disabled doesn't mean they're incapable. So, you know, this was very something that's very dear to Gretchen and very she's very passionate about, and Keith as well, both as as combat veterans. And Gretchen coming back from combat, being deaf, that's what ended her military, her decorated military career. She's in the Veterans Hall of Fame, you know, she's she's a badass. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really proud of her. And she came back and felt like, wow, you, people are saying no to career opportunities or job opportunities or speaking opportunities, or people would close the door on opportunity for her just because they couldn't understand how she was able to navigate uh, the world. And you know, I think that's one of the lessons learned from from adventure from the adventure race is you can find a way. You can always find a way forward. And we really wanted to just put that story out there that just because some someone comes back as a, you know as as a combat veteran veteran or someone has some type of disability doesn't mean they are incapable. It just means they're what we call creatively abled. You know, that's right creatively abled and the show did an amazing job of spotlighting your team Mm. and we'll get to that in a second how did you become the team leader uh process of elimination (laughs) short straw (laughs) yeah 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 short straw short straw uh i loved i loved the team and i just jumped in from that moment where i was you know running the studio in austin um to that first training and i just said man i'm in I'm in this, I, I'm, I'm kind of in a transition moment for myself where I'm looking for what is the next thing. And this race is, is the thing I'm going to do now. What's on the other side of that? I don't know. You know, I couldn't see that at the time, but I could see that this is what I should do. It's what I should take. This is why I put that money in savings. This is why you take those moments to, to get out and run and train and people and relationships and family and like these things suddenly became really important. It's odd to say this now post pandemic, but those things um, in 2019, when we were, when we were really training, we spent nine months together. So yeah, Yeah. I left uh, um, Austin. I packed up and moved and put a bunch of stuff in storage and put a bunch of stuff in my Jeep. And I drove out to Asheville, North Carolina and, and lived with Gretchen and her husband, Robert. Uh, lived in the guest room and with all of our gear packed up at the garage and we just trained full time. That was all we did. We would get up and train. We, I, I learned more about productivity, living with a, a couple of, a couple of military wow. veterans. <laughs> we got more accomplished before 9am than most, <laughs> than most people do in an entire day. That is crazy. And what about the other teammates? Were they with yeah. you too? Keith lived in Nebraska and Ann lived in Asheville as well. So there were three of us in Asheville. And Kale lived in uh, Texas at the time. So, so they were training separately. Were you directing at that point to say, okay, everyone, here's the regimen for this week. Here's what we need to be doing. Um, not really. I mean, somewhat, but not really. Everyone trained individually on their own personal fitness. Can I run 
X number of miles? Can I ride a bike for a certain number of miles? You know, can I swim? Can I paddle? That, that was, everyone was already athletes and they were already in shape enough. We felt like we were in shape enough to be able to do a race like this, or at least give it a good go. What we really spent a lot of our time training on was doing it together because we realized pretty early on that this is going to take all of us, you know, uh, trying to climb up, you know, use a cinders, which is a, a tool that none of us um, had used before in climbing um, or trying to rappel down a cliff with a deaf person on your team. That's a different type of challenge. You're learning how to tie knots and you look over the person next to you and they're, and they're doing it, you know, right or wrong, or they're having some trouble and you, you know, you have to fit, we had to learn our own ways to communicate. And we learned a lot of that by, by doing it, you know, when we were uh, mountain biking and we were out on the trails and we were learning different techniques and, and um, technical techniques for mountain biking. And some local guy was just, just buzzing on the trail that's fine if I, I, can, I can hear him coming. Right. So I could move out of the way. Gretchen couldn't hear him coming. So we had to learn how to communicate with her about like, hey, watch out, watch out. For that Because that guy didn't know. He's going right. too fast. He doesn't, he doesn't stop. So we, we learned our, what we really trained on was how do we communicate as a team? How do we, who's the strongest person at rafting? Who's the strongest person at navigation? Who's the strongest runner? Who's the strongest navigator? You know, we, we just sort of had different, um, things that we tried and then, um, kind of picked the strongest person, the person who had the most experience, the person that the team was kind of most comfortable with. And then we just said like, you're the leader of that, of that discipline. And it was really, you know, I think part of one of your questions was about me. How did I get to be the captain? Gretchen asked me to be the captain. And I was really, um, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. I was really honored. I was, I was really, really honored to be the captain of that team. Yeah. And for anyone that hasn't watched this on Amazon prime, it is still available, right? You can, mm -hmm. you can watch the race. And yeah. so not a spoiler alert in the sense that we want to reveal everything if you are going to watch it, but we have to talk about this. Of course. So your team was spotlighted. You were one of the teams from the very, very beginning. I think in the very opening scene, it was your team because I said to my husband, "Hey, my friend Hal is on this team," and, and there were there were like sixty teams, right? I mean, yeah, sixty six, sixty six. And I was telling my son, "Oh, we got to watch this. We got to find my friend Hal." And then the opening scene, I'm like, "Oh, that's him right there." Yeah, that one. Oh, there he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there he is right there. So, what did that feel like? You didn't know at the time they were going to be spotlighting you that way, right? No. You know, like I said, we kind of got clues and figured out that we were. When they ask us to interview just before the day before we left for the race course, we're like, oh boy, okay, yeah, we should pay attention. It was fun. I loved it. I loved to, you know, to be out there that we had a cameraman that ran along with us. And we sometimes he would have his camera on and we would, you know, Gretchen, Gretchen would say to us, no, you can't cuss when we're on camera. We're like, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'd have to kind of pay attention. Uh, I believe his name was Jeff, our camera guy. So we'd have to be running along. We're like, oh, okay, well, Jeff's recording. So, you know. Well, Jeff had to be an athlete himself to be able to hold that camera and be doing yeah, what you're doing. All of those guys were great athletes, yeah, for the right. follow a number of the teams. So let's talk about the emotional side of this, the fear. I mean, what mm -hmm. were you feeling? I guess when that, the first thing you have to do is paddle 
right? You're in this makeshift kind of boat and people were flipping over and, (laughs) and you have to get to your first destination. And it's a, it's, you know, 66 boats taking off at the same time. It was kind of crazy to watch. And they're beautiful Fiji, right? Beautiful, sunny day, beautiful blue water. What was going through your mind at that, and that, in those moments? Oh man, fear. I've had, I've had an interesting relationship with, with fear. I think, uh, I have said to a number of people, you know, they're, oh, what's your greatest fear? What's your thing? And then, you know, in casual conversations at the pub and in me, and I've really sincerely and honestly said a number of times, like, I don't know. I don't really have a thing that I'm afraid of. And, you know, fear to me is like, you open the door to a room that doesn't have the light on. You know, because it's dark, you're afraid of what might be in there and you fill your mind with the things that might be in there. And so fear really is a reflection of what is in you, not necessarily what is in front of you, what you, the thing you have to do. And if anybody's familiar with the the Enneagram work, I'm a classic eight, man. I am like, I'm just, I'm just charging ahead. So for, I, I had two experiences at the beginning of the race. One I never slowed down enough to feel fear. I never, I never had a moment where I, where I thought we can't do this. And that's probably true for everybody on the team. I think that's probably true for Anne and Gretchen and Keith and Kale. We, we, all, we all were uh, ready to go. We felt well-prepared. We had done a lot of work. We had done a bunch of training. So we felt like we had what we needed to do to, to thrive. Um, however, None of us had ever paddled a traditional Fijian thamakau, is how that's pronounced, which is that they made these boats for the race um, in the tradition traditional um, uh, design. So it is an a, an outrigger canoe um, that has uh, the the ama, the mother, uh, that holds the outrigger itself. And there's a name for that, but I can't remember the the, the Fijian name for that. And it has a sail but it's not a traditional um, sail on it where you can kind of tack the boat back and forth. You, you, it was a very different type of sailing craft. And we had gone out and found the one guy on the Island who no, we, I didn't have, none of us had, we all had experience sailing. We had experience paddling, but we didn't have experience on one of these things. <clears throat> so we had done some research and we, people had told us, you know, Oh, these things tip over really easy and you don't want to lose your stuff. And the first thing you do when you get in the boat is tie it all down and all of these things. So we, we kind of had all this in mind to pay attention. We had found the one guy on the Island that had one of these boats. It was close. It was similar to what we had. And we begged that guy to take us out and to give us some training, <laughs> to give us some training on this thing. And we had gone out and the day we went out, it was probably three and a half foot seas, which is the height of these boats. These these uh, the canoe walls, um, so it was a rough day. It was a very rough day. Uh, not all of us went out. In fact, the captain that day said, "Not all of you can go. Only two can go on the boat for this because it's very very rough. And if it goes well, we'll come back and pick up the rest of you." So that was our plan, and we went out, and the wind took us, and we had it was Ann and I, and Anne, we had 
a miserable time trying to get that thing, even with the captain on the boat, trying to help us get back. And we ended up flipping the boat to get out of the middle of the ocean. So we, at the oh, beginning no. of the race is, we don't know how you're going to start the race. Yeah. They didn't, you, that's a part of it. They give you the maps, they take you to the starting line and they say, go, your, your thing is right down there. Your starting line is down there. And we all took off running and we ran up on the boats. That's how we found out that we started the race on these, on these llama cows. And so our, we had maybe not fear going into the beginning, but we had definitely had a sense of caution, of deep caution. I did not want to dump my team in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of this, on this, at the very beginning of the race, we knew that would be rough to recover from. Let's just get going. And we know we're not a lead team, so we don't need to race everybody off the starting line. Let's just get going. That part turned out to be um, fairly wise, I thought, because the teams that did turn, flip their boats over in the beginning were because they, they couldn't navigate this thing. They were just overly aggressively driving this traditional um, ancient craft and vessel and sort of that's where the flips came from. A number of teams ran into each other and punctured the boats and they, they took on water. And so it was a rough start to the race. Um, what we could not plan for is that there would be no wind. No wind. So here we are in a <laughs> sailboat with no, no wind. wind. Yeah, yeah. So it was all arms. Yeah, and for I think we paddled force. for 14 hours. Brute force. Yeah. Yeah. And let me ask a question about goal setting. I know you're a thinker. I know you're a planner. <laughs> Did you at any point with the team in advance set goals for the race? And what were they? We did. Um, our goal was to finish the race. We, we knew we weren't an elite team. We knew we were newbies. We knew we were, we were maybe in over our heads. I don't know that we would ever think it, say it that way, but we knew we had a, maybe I would say we had a big task in front of us. Um, so we, we were realistic about the challenges and our goals were finish the, finish the course, stay together as a team and come home as a team. And so 14 hours to get to land. And yeah. if I remember it was dark, is that right? Oh yeah. And what time of night was it? When we got to that island, I think it was about 9, 9.30 or so. And were you just exhausted? Oh, we were, yeah, absolutely exhausted. We had plenty, we had energy, but your body is exhausted, you know? Emotionally and spiritually, we had, we had energy. We were singing as we were singing a little, you know, Cadence Army songs along while we paddled along. <laughs> um, we just... We were we were just pooped by the time we by the time we got there, and I think that was certainly not unexpected. Um, when we got to that island, we weren't as far we weren't uh, up into the middle of the pack where we wanted to be, and I think that was sort of the first moment of like, okay, now the how race did, is on. How did you know where you were? Did they tell you, hey, of the sixty six teams, your number, whatever it was? No, we just, we were just judging by the yellow sails. We could see out that perfectly flat ocean. We could see a bunch in front of us and we didn't see a whole lot behind us. So the teams that were strong paddling teams, the New Zealanders, the, you know, the, the Australians, the Pacific Northwesterners, 
that those te- and the elite teams because they knew okay there's going to be these it's they knew enough to know this is going to be in the ocean there's going to be a lot of outrigger and they owned these boats and they did a lot of training so those guys as soon as they hit the water and there was no wind they never put their sails up they just they just crushed it yeah they just crushed so, it so what happened when you got to land and you know it's 14 hours later it's dark it's 9:30 at night what did you guys do did you say hey we got to we're going to rest or we're going to keep going no we were keep going we we knew this is this is the plan this is the way as they say you just we've refilled our water bottles um we drug our boat up to shore um changed our shoes and took off no sleeping the map off you go course and took off yeah so this was the hiking part and you're in the dark and you have Mm -hmm. to navigate if i recall it was pretty pretty steep kind of jungle environment would you describe it that way muddy jungle oh yeah it's We're a on volcanic, a good, it's a volcanic good day. island. Yeah, volcanic island. In mud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a good day, this would be a hard hike. So you yeah. had you had like little headlights, I think you were wearing on mm-hmm. your foreheads. Yeah. And that's all you could do to see, right? Yeah. Which was another fun challenge that we learned. Uh, when you have a person who primarily communicates by reading lips, and anyone who's ever been camping knows that uh, like, oh, your headlights are shining me in the face, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, that's, that was certainly another, another element that we learned a lot of times in, in these adventure races, there is, you're trying to, like I say, there's no defined race course. It's not like there's cones or signs that you're following. You can, you don't get a chance to turn your mind off and then just body along, you know? So, uh, a lot of times you're trying to find the fastest, um, route between two points and sometimes there will be a path there. Sometimes it'll be a road. Sometimes you're recycling on the road. Sometimes it'll be a dirt road. Sometimes it'll be a cattle trail um, or a river or a creek. Sometimes you have a thing you can follow. You're looking at the map and you're following a terrain feature. And other times you don't at all. And so that little volcanic island that that we were going around, a section of it had a path, a section of it even had a road, and a section of it had nothing. And that was the bushwhacking jungle section. Were yeah. you navigating or was someone on your team navigating or all? No, of I, you? Was, I was you navigating. Were, yeah. You were navigating. Yeah. And there was a critical decision that mm-hmm. needed to be made. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I think you, this is the moment that, you know, we've become good friends with a number of the elite teams uh, throughout, even prior to the race, because we ask them a lot of questions. We're newbies and we need help. You know, I, we ask a bunch of questions and we followed and we stayed in touch. I've stayed in touch with a lot of those teams and they've said, they have since said, oh man, we were watching this show. We thought to ourselves, no, <laughs> it's human broken. No, you know, and they, and uh, yeah, they've all said, you know, you just didn't know better. You know, had you done more races, had you even, had you done more adventure races than you would, you would have, you would have known to make a different decision. But in that moment in time, the decision we made was, well, let's see, we can, we can go one of two, we're at this point and we've got to get to this point. Um, this point is really dense, steep uh, jungle. We'd already talked as a team about how that's something we were worried about and we wanted to stay together and that was going to be difficult to navigate. And we had planned all these little techniques and tricks and ropes and things that we could use to kind of navigate through this jungle. But here it was at midnight, 1 a.m., 1.30 in the morning, somewhere somewhere in there, when we first come across this, you know, this difficult, this navigation challenge. 
Um, so do we want to try to take that on in the middle of the night or is there a, is there a smarter route? Is there a smarter way to go about this challenge? And in retrospect, of course, you just head on, you just go for it. Um, but at the time, what we, what we discussed as a team and it's in the show, you see it, you see this discussion happening, um, live, you know, as we're, as we're having the discussion, um, we have two routes. We can go this way, which is through the jungle now, and then on out of the jungle, continue on that, that difficult path and come back to the checkpoint, back to our boat where we were gonna paddle some more. Or we can go the other way around, which is maybe two kilometers longer. It wasn't a significantly longer distance around. And if we go that route, we're on a known path for three fourths of the way. So we're on a road or on a, on a clearly defined path. So we could run, we could move quicker if we go this way. So as, a, as the navigator, what I was kind of saying to the team is we can go this way and bushwhack, follow this route, or how is everyone feeling? Do you feel like maybe that's a bad idea or a bad decision and we're worried about someone, any of us getting injured? Or should we take this known path where we can move more quickly and make up the distance you know, those two kilometers are nothing in a race, you know, that is hundreds of kilometers long. Um, and at the time, you know, this is, a, this is the tough one where I, I just fully own it. I just fully own the decision that ultimately may have taken us, you know, this, there were a number of things that, that, that um, spoiler, spoiler alert, we didn't win the world's dumbest race. <laughs> Uh, this is this is one of those moments, though. It is is definitely a defining moment. It really um, is. It really is. And it, and to watch it unfold, I I could feel the decision was a, it was a big one, right? Yeah. And you really, as the team leader, and it and I and this is a business show, right? So why are we talking about this world's toughest race, Eco Challenge, on yeah. succession stories? Uh, there's so many lessons learned here, and so many For things. Sure in our lives day to day, or even our business lives, we have to make tough decisions. Mm -hmm. And what factors into those decisions? Sometimes we have incomplete information. Yeah. Sometimes we have analysis paralysis. We have so much information, but we really just ultimately, yeah. it ends up being a head and a heart. And I think for you and the team, that's kind of where yeah. you were. You didn't want to put anyone at risk. Right. And your goal, as you said earlier, was to finish the race. But at the same time, your goal was to make sure you came home with everybody. Yeah. yeah. So is that what was weighing on you at this moment? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I didn't feel like, you know, and this is probably an experience talking at the time. I didn't feel like going this extra two kilometers was going to be a deal breaker. Um, I was worried about the team. I was worried about how at the pace that we were moving, I was worried about, everyone being exhausted and being dehydrated. And I was worried about our nutrition and, uh, you know, it's hard to read that in your teammates um, in the dark. And when we chose to go the other way, we never chose to run. And so that was the moment where I realized for me, that was the moment where I felt confirmed in my choice. Okay. We're on a road. But we we are not in a we as a team are not in a place that we could we could run um, and make up that distance, and so that's when I I chose to, for us to to sleep 
you know, let's, hey, how's everybody doing? Do we need to take a, a power nap? Which is one of the famous meme of me saying power nap. <laughs> and what does uh, power nap mean in that context? Like an hour? Yeah. I, I was thinking 20 minutes, two hours, somewhere in there. And we, we ended up doing two hours. I mean, we all knew. I mean, the, the, Keith and Gretchen are, they're soldiers. Like to go days without sleep for them is not a difficult, that's not, was never a, a considered a challenge for them. Oh, you want me to sleep for 20 minutes and then get up and be ready to like go another hundred miles? Fine, no problem. I've done that dozens of times. So we chose to, to sleep for two hours and then get up and continue our path, knowing that by the time we got to that rough part of the jungle, the sun would, would just be starting to come up and we could travel that section through the daylight. And, you know, in retrospect, having a, you know, having a debrief with the team, this is one of the hard lessons that I, that I learned as a leader. And I think, I can look back in my own life and I can see how this overlaps with being a, an entrepreneur. I can see how this overlaps with being a creative director. I can see how this overlaps with running a business, with being a husband, with being a father. There are so many moments where I hear this same voice come to me, right? And I just had this very visceral, vivid moment that's, you know, in public television for everyone else to, <laughs> to experience with me. Right. But I think if you, if I were to, ha- we were to have the entire team on and, and it would have to be a bit of a therapy session. I think that what the team would say is, Hey man, we chose to do the world's toughest race too. trust us to take on the difficult part of this. And don't worry about if we get hurt, like we are also capable. We are also, you know, I, I, it's my nature. It's my nature to, to to take on the 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 intuitive heart role and and sort of forge it with my fortitude to move ahead. And I think that's a lesson that that I had certainly learned from the team. I, I was worried about them. And I think in retrospect, they would have said, hey, if that's gonna ding us and like slow us down for the race, like then let's forge ahead. Trust us to know what we signed up for. And I can again, like I say. I can see that as an entrepreneur, I have felt that those conversations from business partners. I have felt that from designers who are like, man, I got this, like, this is what I do, you know, trust me to, to be good at this thing. And um, even as a father, you know, I can, I can see these moments where I'm like, gosh, I really worry about, you know, my, my son or my daughter taking on this challenge. And then I realize, you know, my son's 15, uh, 14 years old and he's, six foot one, you know, like he's, he's fine. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's not be, a little boy anymore. He's not a little know? boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you were going to replay that decision-making, I mean, we all, we all as leaders, I remember times when I was a CEO, we had to make some really tough decisions, kind of go, no go decisions. And I was in a situation once where I literally said to the room, I designated someone as the 10th man. I had heard about that technique from yeah. Israeli Mossad that they designate someone to take the different opinion on purpose, whether they really truly believe it or not, but that's their job in that meeting or that yeah. at that moment yeah. to offer this, you know, some people say the devil's advocate, but that's another way to think about it is sure. the differing opinion. Why? Because you want to really make sure you're hearing all the different points of view. Now, I, I may not know all the conversations because television wasn't showing every everything now. And I know you right personally. And so I know the kind of leader you are and what a big decision this was, but it, was it all on your shoulders or were people weighing in 
to say, no, we want to keep going. And then you said, uh, like, how, do, how, what was that dynamic? Like, did you yeah. have a 10th man in the room? You know what I mean? There was not a 10th man. It may have been only because there were only four of us, you know, uh, <laughs> I also think this is just a part of the challenge of these races. You're, you're sleep deprived, you're exhausted, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're kind of beyond your wits already. Everyone is on the team. And so, yeah, what you see is what happened on the show where I am looking at the map and I explain these two options and everyone on the team sort of looks at me, you know? And so there's that moment of like, well, okay, that's my answer as a leader, as a, as an eight, as a like forge ahead person, like, okay, well I, you know, and maybe I didn't pause long enough for everyone to go like, wait, 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 what are you talking about? Are you talking about going backwards? You know, like maybe there was this, you know, I can second guess those conversations that never happened, but yeah, I mean, I think that's also one of the things that we've, that we've talked about is, is that sometimes when you're not the person who's, who's quote in charge, it is your role to be this 10th man. It is your role to raise your hand and say, I have a strong opinion about this direction or this decision that needs to be made. Even when it's not your, you know, your decision to make, I think that's one of the, the business lessons that I, that I see as a parallel here is that as leaders, we often don't know your thinking because you're so focused on the f- future that you don't realize the water is slowly creeping up. And then you need, you really do need your teammates around you. You need your, your, your partners to say, Hey, hold on a minute. We, we need to solve this problem, you know, and then we'll get to that big problem. It takes both of you. You got to both be in, in connection with one another. And, and that's, you know, that's true. And, you know, I don't know, every aspect of life. And there really is true. It is. So the next part of the show got even harder. Because yeah. now at this point, you guys, you've slept a little bit and now you wake up and you're realizing, because we should explain probably to everybody, there's a time clock where you have to make it to the checkpoint by a certain time, right? right? That's how the race works. And so if yeah. you don't make it to the checkpoint, you're out. Yeah. So where were you guys in relation to that next checkpoint? We were still on the island and not the main island where most, most of the race was on the main island. They started us by sailing, well, paddling us out to the small island and then back to the mainland. Uh, we collected the ocean medallion. We paddled that, that uh, morning. We, we paddled to the ocean medallion. The overnight was a, a tropical storm that came through and just flooded the mainland, put some other teams in, in actual life risk danger. Uh, they shut the race course down on the mainland that was eventually communicated to us out on the island that the race course is shut down um, for safety and that it'll resume the race. Everyone can continue to move at a, at a certain time. And that changed, that changed a couple of times, you know, trying to read the weather and, and keep teams as safe as possible. And I commend the, the eco team for doing that. That must've been an impossibly difficult decision for them to stop the race um, but it was the right decision to make. They, they, they definitely took care of the racers um, in that moment. So we got up, you know, once the race started, we got up, we got on our boat, we went for the ocean medallion. We were, you know, paddling our hearts out to get back to the mainland. We looked at the 
um, at the clock for ourselves and we calculated, okay, we've got 14 hours. I think we had 15 hours when we first started the conversation. We have 15 hours to get to the checkpoint. And again, you don't know what's next. Our maps only got us back to the mainland. The first set, of, you never get a set of maps to cover the entire thing. Another great metaphor for <laughs> that's true. Right? That's right. If you if you had a map to get to cover the whole thing, it would be a whole lot easier. <laughs> so you get a set of maps to get you through for the first stage, you know, the first round of funding. Uh, and then you end up on the mainland and, you, you know, we, we, we had kind of calculated, okay, we have 15 hours and we felt okay about that. We felt like this is going to be tough, but we got this, you know, the wind picked back up that next morning. It was a beautiful blue sky. We got to use our sail. You know, we were just buzzing across there. Uh, we got to the, to the mainland to get our, to pick up our next set of maps and the race director flew in on chopper to tell us your race is over. And I, I, you know, I said to, to Kevin Hodder was the director of the race. And I said to Kevin, but we still have 14 hours or whatever was left at that time. And he said, you won't make it. And I was like, but we could try. And he just put his arm around me and said, you won't make it. And we learned later that the next leg was a paddleboarding leg up a river. Yeah. Uh, so against the current, and that would have taken, there, there were teams that did that section of the race in 11 hours, just that paddleboarding section up river. Yeah. And then after that was a mountain bike leg that took you to the first uh, transition area where the time cutoff was. And Kevin himself told us it took him nearly seven hours to do that sec that mountain bike section. So yeah. mathematically speaking, yeah, we didn't know it, but we were out of the race long before long before we hit that point. Yeah. What did the team say? And when Kevin came and said that news, what, what was the, what did you feel? What did everybody feel at that time? No, devastated. Yeah. Just devastated. We had a lot of fight left in us. Yeah. You know? We, you know, to go through challenges like that are hard. They are hard, but in my, from my point of view, that's nothing that that's nothing compared to the challenges that Gretchen and Keith had been through in their lives before. And so we all knew how to draw more energy from ourselves and, and move forward. And that's what we had done. And that's what we were ready to move on. And then to sort of have it removed from you is just, you know, it's, it's devastating. And uh, we certainly felt a lot of uh, family and, and camaraderie as a team. Um, but yeah, it was, it's definitely hard. Then, then all the emotion, then all the human emotions set in, right? You kind of yeah. go through all the stages of grief. Were people uh, angry at, at you? Did you feel that they were blaming you for anything? Not at the time. I don't think people at the time, nobody, nobody was um, angry at me. I think later on, I think it's only natural that I was angry, right? I was angry and frustrated. And I think it's natural that the, that the, the people on the team kind of struggled, um, and we're angry that we didn't get as far as we did. And maybe they're, maybe they're frustrated that I didn't make the right decision here or that, that we as a team didn't make the right decision there. Or, yeah, you can go back and second guess all the things. And that's part of the fun of it. And in my opinion, that's a part of it is like, yeah, that's why you do. Now I'm hooked on adventure racing. And I've done four or five races since then. I've placed and won a few trophies on a couple of them. You know, I'm, I'm hooked. And adventure racing now, 
So at the time it was so many unknowns and, and just first time in incredible way that Mm -hmm. the team had come together and then here you are and you didn't get to accomplish it, but yet it gave you so much more, you know, it gave you some different perspectives you never would have had otherwise that you've taken with you, obviously in racing and how it, I call it back to the civilian life. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but you know, after the race, after this kind of, I don't know if it's fame or, you know, people recognize you from the show and here you are back in, in your everyday world, back in the business, being creative. What do you take with you from the race in your everyday life? A lot of things, a whole lot of things. We might have to do a whole second episode. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think there are I'll give you, I'll give you a couple, you know, one of, one of the things that I, I have worked on and and had some professional help along the way is learning how to debrief my own choices, right. And look back at my own actions and to be, I'm good at being really critical of myself. I'm I'm naturally good at that. Um, But to be honest about that critique, self-critique, um, with the intention of applying it as a sort of a, a sharpening stone for for the future and that's where you start to see all of these things that overlap adventure racing becomes a a crucible if you will a a a refining moment where you just are provided with such clarity about who you are as an individual because you're forced to Um, any any race any any um challenge like that is beyond your uh, wits, it's beyond your natural abilities. And so you have to draw from your deeper self, if you will. And so there are a lot of lessons that come out of that experience that apply to things. And I think there are other experiences like this. Other Adventure racing is one of them. There are lots of experiences that, are, that do this and give us this effect. Um, the number one thing I would say is that I encourage everybody, be looking for those moments. And when they come to you, take them, take them. Because it might seem a little crazy. It might not, you might not know how to explain it to your business partners or you might, you might, but you, you know, in your depths, this is the right thing to do. Do it. You'll always be grateful that you took it, even if you didn't win. Um, I think another one is that your, this idea of a disability was kind of brought into my, my mother was uh, brought into a new light. My mom was a uh, speech pathologist and a director of special education. So I've spent a lot of my life around people with disabilities and being a creative person, you know, I have probably have a number of my, of my own disabilities. <laughs> um, but I think this experience with uh, Gretchen and Keith certainly brought a new light to it for me. And one of the things that brought to me was even the, the term, disability is a term made up by the ables, you know, like that some, someone else made that term up and put that label on people that were different than themselves. And um, it's unfortunate because it's not a disability. It just means that person has the opportunity to have this creative ability to do a thing. And when you're able to see it in a new light like that, then at least for myself, I'm, I thrive going to those people who have different perspectives and different opportunities. And as a designer, I want to be around people who see the world totally different than I do, because that helps me make the connections that I may not have had otherwise as a, as a, um, 
business person. It makes me want to embrace the others. And it makes me want to like go specifically go, you know, uh, diversity is a, sure, it's one way to say it, but really it's about someone other than yourself. You know, of course that has to do with race. Of course that has to do with gender. Of course that has to do with a, a number of labels. But the point is go find someone other than yourself and empower them because you'll always be surprised at how capable they are at how their point of view brings so much light to what the two of you could accomplish together that it sometimes makes it so much more fun. You know, we, Gretchen and the team and I laughed, we laughed so many times over silly stuff that we had to figure out. Gretchen's up on the, you know, climbing a cliff and she's kind of in between Keith and I on the rock, Keith's at the top and I'm at the bottom and Gretchen's in the middle just laughing herself silly because she's stuck and we were like yelling at her and she doesn't even know it. Like we've had so many moments like that where we just, life is so much more full because we had these other experiences, you know, it's just, you know, there's, there's lessons in navigation, there's lessons in road mapping, you know, there's I'm lessons. Feeling like in, you've got a Ted talk in your future. I don't know. You've yeah. got, yeah, it'd be you, fun. Really, you really have learned so many things. I can just tell, and I know how you prepared for today and really were very thoughtful about mm. what we were going to talk about. Right. And, yeah. and yeah. I know that there's still so much to learn from going through these experiences, you shared that you now race with your son. Yeah. 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 I took my son on his first race. We did a 24 hour race together. He was 13 at the time uh, that we did it and six feet tall. You know, he was, he wasn't, a, he wasn't <laughs> a tiny little guy. Um, he was the youngest person at that race to complete the all 24 hours. And often in the, in adventure racing, you sometimes find your, find yourself on the course alongside another team or two and adventure racing adventure racers. know unless you're at the elite, you're at the top, you're the first, second or third person, you know, team. Um, you're not racing another team. You're racing the clock. You're racing yourself. You're racing the course. You're racing your decision-making ability. You know, you're, you're racing other things, not, not other people. So you often find yourself along other alongside other teams, and it's kind of fun sometimes to you know to be able to chat and have conversation. Well, I'm racing along. My son's named Colt, and we're racing along together. And all the adults from three separate teams are just exhausted in the middle of the night. We're off our bikes, and we're just pushing our bikes up this long, steep gravel climb. And here comes Colt riding down the, riding down the road on his on his bike, and he pulls up next to me, and he quietly says like. You okay, dad? Like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay, bud. How are you doing? He was like, I'm good. You know, and I'm like, yeah. you know, you don't have to stay with us. You can, you know, just stay with the group, you know, stay with, stay, so you can stay where you can see them. And he, okay. And he pops a wheelie and just like rides off. Off you he know? goes. Yeah. And off that's, he goes. That's, yeah. The, that's the 13, 16 year old body. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. With no, with no back injury. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He loves it. He's really excited about, you know, like learning all the different pieces of it, the different skills from navigating and stuff. It's what a cool experience to be able to give that deeper gift of sort of self uh, reflection and um, confidence that I can do this beyond crazy difficult thing that I can't even really define at the beginning because there's no definition of the, the thing you know, to be able to give that gift to your, to your kids. Oh, 
That's amazing. Awesome. That's yeah. amazing. It's and I, yeah, I'm super impressed with that challenge that you took on to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to train for it. I'm going to dedicate nine plus months, train, work with a team, go to Fiji, try to figure this out. And, you know, and even just the takeaways and the lessons learned, I can tell it'll always be with you. You'll always keep learning from it. And now you're kind of applying it to, to what's next in your life. And the fear that we talked about early on, I mean, I'm kind of a wimp. I can't say I'm afraid of heights, but it's not like I'm going to go jump out of an airplane, you know, and, and just take on all this sort of physical risk. So when I see people doing it that are kind of like me, right? Like you are just like any one of us, right? You weren't yeah. this elite athlete. You sort yeah. of learned how to do it. And my husband has some tendencies where he'll do some crazy sports thing and he's like, let's just do it. Yeah. So some people have that go just do it mentality and yeah. how you apply that in life and business in your physical challenges, I think is a good message and a good takeaway. I love to ask everyone who comes on the show if they have a favorite quote to share. And it's typically about entrepreneurship or leadership. And I, I have a suspicion that you have a few up your sleeve. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're about all the things. <laughs> Uh, favorite quote. I, I'm, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two two uh, favorite quotes that that overlap all of these things we've talked about: family and business and and design and and of course they're rooted in adventure racing. Um, really, the first one is the clock is the only thing you're really up against. Everything else is navigable. You know, lesson learned from just life. You know, you get older, you look back, boy, where did the time go? You know, where did this white beard come from? You know, uh, man, kids are so tall and you, and you look back in businesses sometimes and think, oh my gosh, boy, it's been how many quarters and you, you know, you, you chart things and, and, and growth or challenges or opportunities, but you know, sometimes adventure racing is a great example. Eco challenge was the perfect example of this. The clock is really what you're up against. You know, all the other things, how you paddle, when you paddle, who you paddle with, what training you do, how prepared you are, all that, all of that, the choices you make, do you go, do you not go, do you eat, do you don't eat, do you invest here, do you invest over there? Like really the, really that the navigation of all that stuff is really the fun of life. That's where all the, that's where the smiles and the stories and the heartache and that's the, the joy. It's where it all comes from. The clock is the thing out there. That's the really the one uncontrollable thing that you're up against. Yeah. And well, I'd say this one. Yeah. The second one is, um, man, this is just a hard lesson learned right here. Don't pack your fears. Don't pack your fear. You tend to, in, in, in anything really, but the example in adventure racing is you think to yourself, boy, when I get out on course, I might come across a stream and my shoes might get wet. So maybe I should pack an extra pair of shoes or I should pack an extra pair of socks or someone might get injured. So I might, I might want to pack an extra first aid kit or, you know, boy, if it's really dark, I don't, I don't like the dark. So I'm going to want my headlight to go out. So I'm going to pack extra batteries and I don't know if my headlights waterproof. So I'll pack an extra headlight just in case that one's, 
goes out. You know, you just you go on and on and on and on and on before you before you know it, you've got a pack of 70 pounds and it full of stuff that you will never use and totally don't need. And the first time you cross that stream, you think to yourself, well, I almost cussed. First time you cross this <laughs> cross the stream, you think to yourself, well, that stinks. I'm just gonna go on with wet feet. You know, you just you just learn to like keep going. You don't you can't plan for every situation out there, you know? No, you can't. Yeah. So don't pack your fears. So we've we've talked about so much today, Hal. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And it's been so great to reunite with you. And just I'm so appreciative of you being so authentic and and sharing your story. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Laurie. It's been awesome to catch up again after all the time. I'm so stoked that you still have old Jerome Bettis and the, the nesting dolls over there. Yeah, this has been fun. This has been good. Yeah, it's really good. All right, well, thanks again, Hal. Thanks, Laurie. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories. And if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.